Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, 1 through 3. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. Are we good? Yes, we are. Good. Um, so here's what we're going to do today. This one uh, is it's going to be a lot of information. Taking notes, just kind of like crack your fingers, get ready. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to try to do a couple of things before we actually get going. First, I'm going to try to change how you read the Sermon on the Mount, like entirely, um, because it, you have to change how you read it if you want to read it accurately. Uh, second, I'm going to try to change how you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay, not John. We're leaving John alone. He's, it's written much later, and it's different than the, like, it's a whole thing. Maybe one day we'll talk about that. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to talk about those. And, and I'm going to try to change your view on how you look at those, because you have to change your view on how you look at those to really pull everything you need to pull out of them. Um, and then third, I'm going to, like, in, like, 15 or 20 minutes, try to turn you guys into, like, some biblical scholars, and then we're going to dive into the passage. All right? I'm going to try to get you to, like, to get some things that are super important. And uh, so, like, there'll be, like, numbers and stuff. So try to, try, to, try to, like, focus. I know your notifications are, like, buzzing and Snapchat is blowing up. Just leave it alone for a minute. Okay. Um, literally never been on Snapchat in my life. Um, 36. Okay. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start right here in verse 1. And two, actually, not three. Um, one and two. Um, and I think, like, I'm really excited about this. Um, I don't even know why. I'm just excited about this. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this ancient, ancient writing. Help us to understand it. Help us to grasp it. Um, help us to be here and present. Um, teach us every day to learn to understand um, the context better understand you better, your heart better, the, the heart of the ancient people who are receiving these books, and help us to see, like, sort of put ourselves in their place and compare it to the things that we're dealing with and see how it absolutely does apply to us today. Um, help us, uh, give us understanding today, and then, and then give us wisdom so we know what to do with all, all of this information. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay. So it starts off like this in um, Matthew 5, 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of detail in this. He sits down, he opens his mouth before he talks, right? Um, he's sitting in a specific place on a mountain. Um, and he waits until he sits down to teach, all right? Um, in our day, we read this and we're like, oh, it's just good writing. No, it's, uh, it's actually something far deeper. So um, real quick, trivia, who was the Gospel of Matthew written to? Okay, thank you. You two were listening. I have, all I've got is a couple bags of tea. I'll give you those. Um, so it was written to the Jewish uh, readers of the first century. Now, um, this is a Jewish phrase, like through and through. Um, everything, you're going to hear this word a lot, Jewish, like that when we study through the book of Matthew, um, because we have to put on our Jewish hats, our yarmulkes, we have to put them on. We, 
we, we have to understand this. Okay, so there's three things. The first one looks like this, and it says, he sat down. In the Jewish mind, this means something. This means it, it signifies the official rabbinical teaching. Um, there is this old phrase, sitting at the feet of the rabbi. Um, and you see this all through scriptures. You see Mary and Martha, and one of them sitting at the feet of Jesus. The, the description is that he's sitting, she's sitting at his feet, lower than him, that she's learning. He's the teacher. He's seated on the teaching seat, sort of the seat of Moses that I showed you a couple weeks ago. And she's learning. Um, there are lots of things that Jesus taught just kind of wandering around, um, but they were probably just general information. When Jesus sits, he's a rabbi. Everyone around him would kind of be, hush, 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 he's sitting. He's about to say something. And everyone would sit, gather and sit at his feet around him. And he would teach. And this would be his official rabbinical teaching. This is not just general teaching. This is, you've heard all kinds of things that the Torah says in ways that they're interpreted. Here's my interpretation of the Torah. Here's how um, I look at it. And these are things that would set this rabbi apart from the other rabbis. So the fact that he says he sat down is actually very important, not necessarily to us 21st century people, but to us when we think in first century Jewish terms. So he sits down. So he's got an official rabbinical teaching of his own original thought. Okay? Now, um, and then it says, and he opened his mouth. This is not necessarily a Jewish thing. This is a first century Greco-Roman thing. It's a, it's a Greek idea. It's sort of like saying... Um, and he poured his heart out. Or um, it's, it's sometimes when you, it's like, it's, it's sort of higher up language. When an oracle would talk, an ancient oracle you would go to for wisdom or a sage, whatever. Um, um, they, they would say, and he opened his mouth and taught. It's sort of like saying he opened his heart. Um, he spoke with authority. Um, these words have weight and meaning far above regular banter, all right? Um, so these things, it's, it's, it signifies a solemn, grave, and dignified utterance, the sayings of an oracle. Now, there's one more thing in verse 1 to 3. It says, and he taught them, saying. And then, uh, so you read this, and you're just like, well, he taught them. He's gonna, um, this is where uh, a good understanding of ancient Greek and Hebrew kind of enter into the picture. Because like in English, we have, apparently English is a very difficult um, language to learn, I didn't have a hard time with it. I learned it at like two. Um, but apparently it's hard because there's all kinds of, you know, um, inflections and, and we use a lot of slang and we replace a lot of random words and we're always making up new ones. Um, but in the Greek, there is um, two different past tenses. One of them uh, is called the aorist tense. It, it's, it, it basically means uh, it's something that is done and completed in the past tense. In other words, he went home from work. All right, so if I say he went home from work, it's something that's done in the past. He was at work. He, ended, he went home. That's an aor, aorist past tense. Um, and also in Greek, there is what's called the imperfect tense. Uh, it's repeated continuous habitual action. In other words, he went home from work every day. That would be, um, that would be the imperfect tense. It's, it's habitual. It's rhythm. It is something done regularly. It is constant sort of um, re- repetitive activity. When Matthew writes, and he taught them saying, he does not use the aorist tense. He uses the imperfect tense. This, uh, in the minds of, of theologians and scholars, literally means 
that the Sermon on the Mount is not something that Jesus sat and taught one time. This, the Sermon on the Mount, is the official rabbinical teachings of Jesus that he over and over again taught them. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 is um, the collection um, and sort of the definition of the teachings of Christ. It is the most important work that we really have in the Gospels. Because if people who ask, well, what kind of things did Jesus teach? We don't realize this, but they have been collected and put together in one section, two chapters called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's not something that Jesus sat down and taught all at once. This would be over the span of several years Jesus taught all of these things. That is why, um, that is why when you look at the Sermon on the Mount compared to these same teachings in other places, why they're spread out. Matthew 5.13 is in Luke 14. Matthew 5.15 is in Luke 8. Matthew 5.18 is in Luke 16 and on and on and on. They're spread out because what Matthew has done as a disciple of Jesus, someone who was like the rabbi and daily becoming like the rabbi, at some point gathered all of the teachings of Christ and put them together in one form and put them in the book of Matthew. Are you with me? So William Barclay, theologian, New Testament theologian, puts it like this. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than the concentrated memory of many hours of heart-to-heart communion between the disciples and their master. Um, This is really important to understand because um, last week we talked about what it means to be a disciple. Um, Spending time with living with in the presence of Jesus all the time. Um, We collectively as the church come together as the body of Christ. That means we are Rabbi Jesus. That means we spend time together. We live life together. But there are also teachings that we need to learn. And through that, we're going to learn these things through the scriptures, through through each other's um, sort of encouragement and rebuke. And also, um, we should be probably reading... This collection, this is why Matthew put it together, Matthew 5 through 7. You should probably be reading these on a regular basis, putting them in your heart, understanding them, opening up all the language in them. It is incredibly important that you understand these passages. And so we're going to go slow, and this is going to be a long journey through these two chapters. Um, On the Beatitudes alone, it's probably going to be 10 weeks or so, Um, um, unless I find easier ways to, like, sort of get all the information out. So... Are you with me so far? Okay, I haven't lost you. Good. I'll lose you now. Um, this is, uh, this is, and so you look at things like this and you say, well, well then, that, I'm, I'm having a hard time with the fact that they're all together. Um, why did Matthew do this? Why didn't Matthew spread them out through the, through, the, through the book? Okay, so this question is answered by understanding the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to try to lay that out for you now. Try to keep up. Here we go. Um, Mark, so stick figure form, easiest way to understand everything in the world. Um, Mark was written first. It is the first gospel written. It is also the shortest gospel written. Um, Mark has 661 verses in it. Um, Luke was probably written second. I put a little parenthesis with a question mark, pretty sure. Um, Matthew was definitely written third. John was written last, much later, and it's, it's written completely differently. Um, for a reason, again, one day maybe we'll go there. Um, so, we have Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Now, Mark has 661 verses in it. Very short. Mark is focused not on the teachings of Christ. Mark only writes about the events of the life of Christ. 
the things he did. Got up in the morning, went to work, came home. It's just facts. Here's where he went. Here's what he did. Uh, it's not about what he taught. Um, Matthew is a little longer, uh, 1,068 verses. And then we have the book of Luke, which is 1,149 verses. John, I believe, has 960-something, so it's like right in the middle. Um, so um, why is this important? This is important because if you read them all back to back and you sort of put them on a graph as you do when you read books, you put them all on a graph, um, you're going to see some things. For instance, um, 582 of 661 verses in Mark. Think about that. 582 of them, of the 661 verses, almost the entire thing, um, can be found copied verbatim into Matthew and Luke. And so we know from scholarship, that this tells us that Matthew and Luke were actually using Mark as a source. Mark was written first, and instead of reinventing the wheel, they're going to take the Gospel of Mark, written the earliest, most accurate account, and they're going to sort of um, copy it into their own, okay? Um, Some of you have probably never heard this, but this stuff's important to understand. Um, And then there's more. Um, There are 200 verses which are not in the book of Mark, That Matthew and Luke share, which means something. Which means that not only were they using Mark as a source, they were using another text as a source because the question we have is, where did these 200 verses come from? Um, Because, I mean, if two people are writing a paper and they turn it in and 200 paragraphs in that paper are exactly the same, they both obviously shared another source. And the teacher is going to yell at both of them. Um, because they didn't footnote it, because we're like, where did it come from? Um, So, this is the great part, is is like, there's still, there's lots of work to be done in the scriptures, in in the Bible. There's lot, like, you can dive in and like search for all kinds of stuff that scholars are still working on. Like, this book is fascinating and amazing, Um, because we're like, where, where did these 200 shared original verses come from? They're verbatim in both other chapters. Well, Scholars, we actually know at this point there is another source that we call Q. Uh, Q means, it's like, I think the word is quell. I think it's German for source. And some people call it the Q source, which is redundant. But it's called Q. Um, And Q is, it's an ancient text which we no longer have. We have lost it, but we have all kinds of references to it all through church history. And Q is a collection of the teachings of Christ. And, and you kind of ask yourself, well, where did that come from? Who wrote that? Um, and that answer is, is um, I would argue, it's, it's pretty easy to know. There's two people that mention it and mention the authorship of it. One of them is Papias. Um, Papias was a contemporary, lived at the same time as the disciples. And Papias writes this. He says, Matthew collected the sayings of Jesus in the Hebrew tongue. Okay? Um, I say all this to say something very simple. Um, Matthew didn't actually write the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew did not write that. The Gospel of Matthew um, is something else. Matthew wrote a book called The Sayings of Jesus, apparently. The Teachings of Christ. He was a disciple of Jesus, and at some point, Matthew wrote a book. We call it Q. And he wrote down all of the teachings of Christ for the church to gather and read. At some point early on in church history, someone took the Gospel of Mark and the book of Q, Matthew's writing sayings, and they put them together to form the Gospel of Matthew. And because the whole point of it 
is so that the people can see not only the life of Christ, but the teachings of Christ. So the focus is Matthew. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. So if we are solving for X or Q, (laughs) Q plus Mark equals the Gospel of Matthew. Do we all get it? No, I heard a couple no's. Okay, sorry. I thought I'd be better at this. Um, So this is... This is like some, now that you all understand this book, now you, hopefully you can read the Gospel of Matthew in a healthy way. Matthew is written specifically to speak to the Jewish people. Um, and we're not even saying that Matthew didn't necessarily compile the Gospel of Matthew. We're, I'm arguing there's just no reason he would have to. And when we say the Gospel of Matthew, we're not referring to the author. Matthew doesn't even say who wrote it. Okay, the rest of the Gospels say who wrote them. This one does not. Um, and so it's, it's Matthew's book plus Mark's gospel put together, and we have the gospel of Matthew, okay? Um, this is important to understand because it affects how you read the Bible, um, and it helps you with a lot of questions that are going to pop up, like why is Jesus saying this here, and then in the book of Luke, he's saying it somewhere else. Um, and so with all this in mind, good, run time. So with all this in mind, um, I'm going to move to today's passage because now you understand one thing importantly that the Sermon on the Mount is the heaviest sort of writing that we have um, in the four Gospels. It is the collective teachings. And Matthew is incredibly important because he saved these things. He wrote them down, and they survived through the Gospel of Mark and Luke. Um, I'm sorry, through the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. And so with that now, we are going to open up what Matthew argues is... The official teachings of Jesus. All right? And these are the things that we have to understand. So it starts off with what's called the Beatitudes. Um, we're going to start off looking at the word blessed, because the word blessed is at the beginning of every single Beatitude. So we're going to open that up now. So it goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the word blessed is this word makarios. Everyone say makarios. Very good. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's self-contained joy. That is independent of external circumstances. There is, it, it is joy that is found inside of itself. Um, it, is, um, it finds its secret in itself. It's joy that's independent of, of anything going on outside of you. It's not happiness. It's not, sometimes you hear people translate it, happy are those who are blah, happy are the happy are. Happiness is not the word. Happiness has at the beginning of it this word hap, as in happenstance or it just so happens. Um, happen, happiness is... Uh, it, it includes, like, random chance. It includes, like, um, you ate your five guys' meal, and then you get to the bottom, and oh, there's more fries. That's happiness. <laughs> it's something that happened that makes you happy. Happened happy. See? Um, it's random chance. It's shallow. Um, it's not meaningful. What we are talking about here is more than a joy. It is an understanding that brings lightness. It is something that you don't receive later. It's you have now, you possess inside of you and you hold on to, um, and it's a source that you draw from, okay? But it is joy. We call it blessed. It's makarios, okay? So this is the word that, G- that, that Jesus puts at the beginning of every one of the Beatitudes. So now we read this word, um, so blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so now we can look at the word poor. Poor, 
uh, there are two different words for poor in Greek. Uh, one of them is penes. It, it means possessing nothing superfluous, nothing left over. Um, it's someone who gets up and goes to work every day. They work hard because they, they need that money to make it every day. Um, they're not, you know, they maybe have some debt. Um, their life is not easy at all by any means, but they're not going to die. Um, it's what sort of what we would associate with like poverty in America, okay? Poverty in America is not necessarily, you're not going to starve to death from it. You will get things like diabetes, um, and it, it will kill you earlier than other people. But you're not today in danger of dying in this moment, whereas poverty in other parts of the world, you, you are. It's a different thing. And so that is one form of, of the meaning of poor in the Greek, but it's not actually the word that, that Matthew uses. The word Matthew uses is this word patachos, uh, and it means absolute and abject poverty. Um, the root of this word, posin, means to crouch, to cower, to be on your knees, starving to death, begging because you don't want to die. That's the weight of this word. Um, some pastors will read this and they'll say, poor in spirit. It's a spiritual thing. No, this is like literal poverty. Poor in spirit, the reason that's there is because they're hopeless. Their spirit is down. They're, they don't see a future. And, and today, they desperately need something. And so you read this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, so this is something that you would learn from Jesus, and you would sit, and you would meditate upon this, because why? Why would he say this? Nobody wants this. Nobody wants to experience this. Um, so the idea starts off with um, a very simple idea. Um, there are some things which are true that most of us don't think about, that we don't fathom, that we try to push away. Um, and it has to do with surplus. The vast majority of us, I would argue probably all of us in this room, um, have surplus. We have extra clothing, extra food. Some of us have extra cars. Some of us have extra houses. Some of us have extra money. Um, some of us, um, all of us, I would argue, don't have to worry about really today at all. Probably not even this week or this month. And for some of us, we're not even worried about the next 10 years. And for others of us, 50 years. You're never going to have to worry about starving to death. Okay? Um, that's fine. I'm not, I'm, this is not law. The teachings of Jesus here have nothing to do with law. They have to do with changing your heart. They have to do with being born again. The idea of like awakening to the divine to who we are, where we are, how to interact with the world around us. The part that God plays in our lives, the part we play in God's creation. Um, so there's this idea of surplus. Um, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who have no surplus at all. Who are worried about this very day, where they are going to get their food from. And the, the idea is that bless, they're blessed. There's something inside of them that they have that they can draw from that you and I cannot. 
because they understand something very fundamental about the universe and about faith that you and I cannot understand. There's this... um, I mean, so the rest of the verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, is the kingdom of heaven. Um, if, if I'm going to sort of define this and take just this underlined part here, I'm going to rewrite it like this. Those who are absolutely destitute will find joy that transcends their external circumstances. This is the idea. And again, a lot of us are like, well, again, that seems awful because we spend our entire life trying not to become destitute. And I'm not arguing you should become destitute. I'm arguing, though, that because you are not destitute, there are things which you cannot know and will not know and can only be learned from being around people who are destitute. There is wisdom and joy and meaning and perspective you are incapable of grasping because of your position. All of us. Um, There's this passage in Psalm 121 we sang about this morning, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The idea here is, is um, in the ancient world, the gods lived where? They lived on top of mountains and stuff, on top of hills, top of mountains. And what you have in front of you here, um, you have crops and you have livestock and you have cities and towns and people and temples um, and you find nothing in it. There is something, none of this, can meet necessarily the need that you have. And so what do you do? You raise your eyes and you look to the hills and to the mountains and you say, well, where does my help come from? My help comes from... You're looking at something higher. There's an admission that nothing that we have, our savings accounts, our insurance policies, our healthy eating, and our... Um, our fit lifestyle, our part of town we live in, our gated communities, our, our, our cars with um, like 20 airbags all around you that go off at once when you bump into something. Um, all of these things create this illusion that they are providing you with life, that they are keeping you alive and the ones you love alive. And it creates this illusion that we are somehow immortal, that we somehow are alive of our own accord and our own decisions. So there is this illusion that everything we have does not actually come from God, from the hills. There is this illusion that somehow we are kept alive by our own works, our own decisions. But there are people who have none of the things that you have who understand the reality of the situation. That they are on a rock flying through space and that the God of creation has brought this thing to this point over the span of 14.5 million years and you walked out the front door this morning and somehow you exist and you're alive and this light particle from a burning ball of gas 93 million miles away hits you on the cheek and it warms you up a little bit. And you somehow think that you're fine because of your bank account or your extra airbags. And you neglect to understand what the absolute destitute understand. Every day is a gift. Every day is a miracle of life. You woke up this morning and you inhaled, you exhaled, 
and you are here, and you have someone to thank for that, and it is not yourself. It's, in the, it's God. We lift our eyes to the hills. This is where our, our help comes from. And when we forget this, when we start, and I'm, again, all we like to do is read the Bible and turn these things into law. So what you're saying is I shouldn't have this and that in airbags. I'm not saying to do or don't do anything. I'm saying there is things you will not know in your position that you actually need to spend time with people who understand these things. Um, Because it, it says in the passage, blessed are they because theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Um, earthly kingdoms kind of look like this. More stick figures. There's somebody on top and they're rich. They've got a scepter and a crown. All right, This is ancient riches. Like they're rich. And there's people on the bottom who have a cup and they're begging for money and they're poor. And this is the kingdom of earth. This kingdom has nothing to do for this guy down here. Nothing. They are destitute. They are poor. Um, they'll never achieve that. There was no upward mobility in the ancient first century world unless you were doing evil, evil things. And And when the author writes this, when Jesus speaks these things to these people in their situation, they understand that for the poor, there is no kingdom in this world for them. Their kingdom is different. Their kingdom actually looks like this. It's upside down. Everything that Jesus does as a rabbi is backwards. It's upside down. He takes the system and he says it's upside down down. It's supposed to look like this. And then Jesus points out right up front with his teachings that those of us who have surplus, again, will never understand things that the poorest of the poor will understand. And so what you need to do is you need to spend some time with them and you need to serve them. Let them become your teachers. They have wisdom that you don't have. You think Everything is provided for by you and your wise, smart decisions. And you think somehow this will make you happy, but it's never really fulfilling. And so you keep pursuing more. And then you stand at the foot of a friend of yours, maybe, who got in an accident. And now they're a quadriplegic. And you sit at the foot of their bed. And they look at you and they say, I'm just glad to be alive. I'm just glad to see the people that I love. But you're never going to walk again. But I'm alive. But your existence is like, it's, it's humiliating. It's a loss of lifestyle. I'm alive. And it's a miracle. And I'll receive that. It's grace. It's a gift. And I'll receive that. And so we, we, we find these people... Um, those in hospice care, those in prison where everything has been taken away from them. You don't think they've learned something that you'll never learn? Um, Those who are ill, those who are bedridden, those who are absolutely impoverished, addicts. um, There are things you will learn from actually from, from having a baby, from raising a child, which you will not learn any other way. The fact that now there's this person which you have to feed and clothe every single day will teach you something about God, first off, as a mother bringing life into this world, and second, as a father protecting and caring for. Um, Like the attributes of God, you will learn more about them from having to take care of this person. 
you will also learn about God from those who cannot have children, who have been trying and trying and trying and begging for the gift of life, and they look around, and everyone else has them, and they cannot. There are things you will learn from these people that you will not learn from your experience at all. And so in the kingdom of God, those with surplus, those with no ability to learn these things, who are healthy, who are fine, who always have been, uh, in the kingdom of God, they sit at the feet of the lowly and the destitute. And not only do they learn from them, they be- the destitute become the teachers. Not only that, the rich become the servants because they have a way of providing for these people. And so there is this mutual understanding. There is this loving, giving flow which you take part in in the kingdom of God. Um, in the first century, this teaching would not go over well with 95% of the people that heard it. But the poorest of the poor and the disciples of Jesus who really wanted to be like their rabbi would hold on to this and their lives would be absolutely changed. This was brand new. No one had ever heard of this. Ever. Um, there, I mean, the hard thing is that this is something that it's hard to teach if you've never experienced it, and I'll be honest, I've never experienced it. I've never been poor. I've never been destitute. Um, I've had times where I'm like, that are like financially scary. We lost a house. In the, I mean, everyone lost a house in 2009. Everyone. Um, and so there's like this collective, yeah, I lost a house too. But we've never had to worry about food or clothing. My family's always been there. I've never lost anyone really close to me. I've lost cousins grandparents, but this feeling, and it's hard to teach because I've never experienced it, but some of you have. And so your place in this community is different. It's a little higher. You have something to teach. The widow, the orphan, the sick. Um, You have a place of teaching those of us in this church. Um, my wife, when we were talking about this the other night, I kind of run stuff by her. We sit on the porch, talk about it, and she was saying, I understand this. And I was, you know, and then she told me about it because when she was young, um, she used to get in a lot of trouble in her late teen years. Um, she dealt controlled substances and got kicked out of every school, like in the north side of Atlanta, and then ended up in basically a little a, a girl's home. It's kind of like a prison um, where she lost everything. Her parents kind of abandoned her there. She lost all her family, lost her freedom, lost everything. Um, Every day was regimented. Every day, get up, take this toothbrush, scrub the gym floor, take these scissors, cut the football field. Um, Hard labor. And everything was taken from her. And she says, and honestly, as awful as it was, I woke up to life. I realized what a gift life is. And freedom and all of it. And so those who have suffered, those who have been to the bottom in the kingdom of God become the teachers. And then we picture how the kingdom got established. That God, the creator, the divine, the creator of all things, humbled himself, made himself nothing, entered into the world, 
and is seen washing the feet of the disciples of his rabbi, establishes this rabbinical tradition that is new, that is upside down, where the highest put themselves lower than the rest, and the lowest are lifted up above the rest, um, and absolutely changes the world. And so these teachings for the Jewish people who received this book were mind-blowing. And this is just the first one. We need to get familiar with these teachings. They are the summary of the teachings of Christ. And so hopefully we will. Um, And so the whole idea here is that each and every one of us, whether we know it or not, are destitute. Nothing that you have can promise you tomorrow or the day after. Nothing you have can promise life to the loved ones that you have around you. And so every moment is a gift and it's grace and it should be received and held on to and thanksgiven. Glory to God. Whatever is received, glory to God. Because we are destitute and completely ignorant of it. And what happens is we get wrapped up in these trivial things and we go into autopilot and we'll live an entire day and not even realize we just lived it. And then think, well, that day went by fast. I just want to get through tomorrow. I just want to get through. What's coming? You're living it now. Stand in it. Receive it as a gift from God and celebrate it. And this is something we learn from those who have suffered. There's no other way to learn it. And so we're going to take communion because we learn all of this from Christ who has suffered in our place to bring us to salvation. And this is all part of that salvation. It's not just renewal of the soul. It's the heart and the mind and the life. So if you're a, uh, um, a communion server, go ahead and take the, take the elements and gather around the room. And um, We do this every week to remind ourselves the body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was spilled for you. And it is a reminder every single day that it is through the great efforts and the great pain of others that we are here, that we are alive and we are saved. And the example, the full example of this is Christ on the cross who gave himself for you and I. And so whatever it is that you're going through, whatever you have done, no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, you come to the table and the body of Christ is broken for you and the blood of Christ is spilled for you on an equal level, evenly distributed among all of us. It is undeserved It is the life-giving force. We are all destitute and rely upon this. And communion is where we admit it. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Change us. Wake us up. Let us learn what it really means to be born again. And let us live in that way. Thank you for your suffering and what it reveals to us about life. In your name. Amen. Take some time.